and welcome to the Pain and Pride Quarterly Slush Pile. So happy that you're here with us today as we embark on our um, mission of pulling back the veil on what happens once you send in the work. What happens at PBQ, at least, is lots and lots and lots of people read your work and lots and lots of people discuss your work. And then we have a democratic editorial policy in which we vote on your work. And um, we're very happy that so many people send in their work to us and have the patience to let us think and mull over their work and talk about it. And that's exactly what we're gonna do today is read two poems by Marco Capaferi and uh, discuss them with our editorial board who has gathered here today. This is not everyone. This is a nice little sample though. So I'm Kathleen Volk Miller and I'm uh, still remote as we all are, but hope to be back in person soon and doing it in the studio again. Um, but right now um, I'm here in my office in the same space I've been for 15 months. And that's okay, because it's ending soon. And I'm going to bounce this to Marion Wren, who's in a new place. I am in a new place. Greetings, slushies. I'm in Kannapolis, North Carolina, home of the Kannapolis Cannonballers. <laughs> who are finally able to play ball, right? So the stadium's open, the season has commenced, um, and they set off fireworks at like 10.30 the other night and I thought the world was ending. I had no idea, I had no idea that fireworks were gonna happen and I was like, we're being attacked. Uh, and and is that note, baseball field right near you? That baseball field right yeah, near you? We're about, we, we live in the mill village. So it's maybe less than a mile from the from the ball field. Oh yeah, we walked over there. It was really close. Yeah, so, so yeah. slushies, if you're ever, you know, looking for a North Carolina vacation, Amtrak comes right to Kannapolis. It's the, the, the stop right before Charlotte. So just jump off, get a beer at Armor, Armor Brewery, Old Armor Brewery, and <laughs> watch the watch the game and then come, you know, you can sit on my back porch while I'll sip a, a whiskey out of mason jars. And I, that's not a stereotype. That's an actual fact. Welcome to North Carolina. My mom, she loves sipping whiskey out of mason jars. 87 year old lady and, and me. It's great. Prison whiskey? You Prison get whiskey from Prison Conviction whiskey. whiskey. Yes. The the local brewer, local distillery down here is called Conviction Whiskey. And I'm speaking too long, but I just have to tell you this. So Kathy and I went for a visit there. It's a it's a defunct prison that they've turned into a distillery. It's pretty amazing. Anyway, greetings from North Carolina. I'm going to bounce it over to Alex. Hey, it's Alex. And I'm remote, but I'd be remote anyway because I'm on the island. Uh, Long Island, <laughs> sorry. Can't say the island. I can't say the city or international usually. So uh, speaking of which, I, Sam, where are you right now? Because everybody's moving around. So... <laughs> I am in Philly right now. Oh, okay. Hi, everyone. Yeah. I'm Samantha Nukebauer. <laughs> are, are you done your intro, Alex? Or was this like a yeah. well, that was Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, this will probably be my last podcast from Philly um, because I'm moving to Baltimore in two weeks. Uh, very excited. Johns Hopkins is going back in person. So, um, so I'm in a room full of boxes. Um, but I'm really excited to to talk about some poetry and 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 how are you, Larissa? Doing okay. I'm in my office closet in Delco. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm in West Philadelphia, just practicing my mayor of Easttown. And I have uh, my lovely co-op here who does all of your editing now, Kate. 
Yay, Kate. Yes, hi. Hi, Kate. So glad you're with us. God bless the Drexel Co-op system. Yes. Amen. <laughs> so, so, right. Well, I think we should just get to it now. So we have two poems today from Marco Capaferi, and um, we're going to start with San Gorgino. Gorgonio. Just looked up how to say it. San Gorgonio. And um, so, so should I do this one? Yes, do it, KVM. Okay, I'm going to do this one. San Gorgonio. White paper coffee cups collect in drifts by the freeway exit ramp. The hearts of ghosts once held tight, then tossed out the window of a car speeding across the desert at 4 a.m. Trying to stay awake to see when the light came back, what the battered face of the land could tell us about ourselves, how the mountains were stark and risen, how we were sunk dumb in between a scathing plane of wild wind turbines resonating unearthly as Amelia Earhart's flooded engines chugging their final gasp on the ocean floor, how the sea was here once and swallowed heights long since yawned and pulled away, paving this desert with a tired yellow dirt now blown through our teeth, through our beating pistons and a few black rounded stones as souvenirs from lost time. How thistle studded towns were hardly refuge. How the many stones we had gathered were bright and jagged, too young by design to tell any real story. How lust and lost became an exchange in glances through a motel's cracked facade. How these roads kept on dressing down like lightning on a postcard, running fingers and the hot mouth of experience. Mm, mm, mm. Woo, what an ending. What a reading. Well done, KVM. Thank you, thank you. Gosh, I love reading. I love reading good poetry. I love reading poetry that's just so fun to say with your mouth. So speaking of saying things with your mouth, right? Um, Celeste, you, you will have heard us struggle over San Gorgonio um, because everyone on this call, and Kate, I'm not sure if this applies to you, but everyone on this call has East Coast roots and the San Gorgonios are West Coast mountains. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so we were laughing. We were like, it's just not part of our like topographical vocabulary. It's and it would be like somebody from California trying to learn to say Schoogle. Right? I'm gonna like, say Schoogle. I hope that's yeah. what you're gonna say. Yep, 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 yep. So what's local for us is just a different topography and a different vocabulary. So it's yeah, so San Gorgonio. Um, but slushy's also it's if you look at this poem, it's it's really um tightly tightly held, even though it's sort of loosely described. So these are four line stanzas that capture this sort of evanescent mood, right? Of driving, like I imagine through this canyon, looking at the mountains, right? Yeah, what I, so I'll admit to a personal bugabear of mine, like I don't love nature poems that are like, oh, look at these trees, bah, 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 like, I need more of an entryway in, and I love the relation between the the environment and the and people, and like how it's interacting. Just like the scope for like 
there used to be rivers here and now there's not just like a person or a speaker recognizing their relation to size and stuff like that. There's a lot of, it, it feels lived in this poem. Like it's not just like, here's this tree. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Alex, what did you say? It feels what in this poem? Uh, kind of, I guess lived in, it's a lot of, a lot of words that I'm trying to circling around what I meant. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about exactly that a lot lately. I sort of need to know who the persona is who is describing the scenery for me. You know, just the description alone doesn't, you know, it, I know it's Kit Kats and Stickers, but um, I, I really get far more engaged when a specific person is telling me about the scene. Or persona, I should say. Um, and I should also welcome Jason Schneiderman. I hope you turn your camera on so we can see your tousled hair. He just woke up and we just started discussing Antonio. Oh, it's it's cut so short it cannot be tousled. Wow. It's, it's, it's new cut look. so it could only be tousled. Well, I don't know. So ca catch up as you can. I'm I don't not. know. Uh, these were sent. We always send these back in advance, but we don't discuss them at all prior to the uh, episode. Yeah. So jump in when you can, but um, okay. other thoughts so far? Peeps? Um, one of the lines I love is um, in, this, in the second stanza, second line, what the battered face of the land could tell us about ourselves. Um, I really love this because I, I think a lot about like this, this people or planet concept, right? Like what do we prioritize? And I feel like there's, there's a little bit of a dig there about how like kind of we go to nature to like think about humans <laughs> instead of like thinking about nature as kind of a, an entity um, separate than us. And I think this whole poem kind of like what Alex was saying plays with this this idea of this this interaction of human and nature uh and 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 what kind of crazy things we do to each other um I, ju I just think it's really gorgeous throughout and I love the Amelia Earhart reference as well yeah me too okay wait so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna throw down the gauntlet or, or slap somebody with a pair of gloves right whatever the romantic gesture is there for a little you know, on guard, let's have a little fight. Um, the ro That romantic move, right, of reading yourself into nature, like I'm sad, therefore it's raining, right, can be a little heavy handed in poems, right? And, and what I'm hearing you all say is that this is veering towards something else, like it's calling that up, but maybe doing something different than that, right? So I don't know if that's like a kind of eco poetics, or if it's if it's commenting on um, the habit of looking for your heart in the landscape, but I would love to hear more about why this does not dip into that sort of romantic maneuvering. So, um, so what you're describing, I think, is, is the new critical pathetic fallacy, right? That yeah. when um, the the mood or the, I mean, the, one example is it rains at the funeral because we're sad at the funeral. Another example is this is a boring event, so I'll write about it in boring language, right? And, right, right, right. and obviously all these are, these are problems. Um, the, the reason I think it doesn't do that is because it feels to me like it's really about 
Um, I, and I'm gonna pull this, there's a Jennifer Knox poem where she talks about, you know, the reason we used to like lion tamers is because in the battle of man versus nature, we didn't know who would win. And, you know, with someone like Amelia Earhart or, you know, there's this kind of like effort to triumph over these sort of insurmountable odds that are put forth by planetary existence. Um, but now we know who wins and it's not nature. And that's a problem, right? Like what we're dealing with now is the fact that we do triumph over and over again with our fossil fuels and our, you know, it's, and it's not good and our housing developments. And um, so I feel like this harkens, like, like this foregrounds nature as nature because treating nature as a symbol is precisely what's kind of gotten us to global catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I felt like over and over again, what I was seeing, um, how these roads kept on dressing down like lightning on a postcard, running fingers in the hot mouth of experience, right? Yeah. That um, it's really about this way in which you can't turn nature into a competition because we're not, and like, if we win, we lose. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why it felt to me like it was, it, like that's kind of feels to me what's at heart here is like, if we win, we lose. And so we have to be in tandem, we can't be in competition. And that's why it didn't feel like it was sort of recapitulating um, a kind of familiar version of nature mm -hmm. um, is a symbol for the human. That it felt like, oh no, no, like we're actually part of the nature. So we just need to like kind of really adjust the paradigm. That, that's what I was, I was feeling in the poem. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, Jason, if we win, we lose. And I would say, Marion, to go back to that um, uh, initial question to put it even like, super simplistically, he doesn't do that. It's not, it's raining because I'm sad. It's 1000 times better, right? I think that we, we, what do we do? We're always rehashing the same story. What are there seven basic plots, right? All of that stuff. And this is just done so well. I think you can do anything if you do it well, right? I love that Amelia Earhart stanza as well, and I love, I always, always love to think about what, what, what happened right in the middle, right, and that middle section of uh, reminding us how the earth changes, right, that this, this yellow desert between our teeth was once ocean is just such a trippy thing to think about for us, right, we think last week was important. And this, and this is about, you know, eons of time. It was funny because like we were looking up how to pronounce the name, which I'm avoiding <laughs> for reasons. Uh, but like there's a section in the Wikipedia page about aircraft wreckage too, not Amelia Earhart because it's completely different direction, but it's so it, like this mountainous history of uh, occasional winds in the, in a fight, I guess. So I don't know if that like adds or enhances our understanding of the poem, but just thought it was interesting because according to the Wikipedia page, it took out uh, Frank Sinatra's mother and Dean Martin's son. So two of the Rat Pack. <laughs> wow. Wait, what took them out? The So there's a section, uh, uh, a section in the Wikipedia page of aircraft wreckage. In, in the San Gorgonios. Okay. Yeah. I say right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. Wow. That's it, so. Yeah. So I guess 
maybe that's the thing too, right? That um, as a as an editor, one of the things I admire about this poem, right, is the the way it functions like a time release capsule. Be honest with you, right? Like it it it, it becomes more dimensional the more I read it, right? And so Alex, that gesture of like going to a Wikipedia page, right? adds context, adds even further dimension to this already like amply resonant piece, right? It's, um, yeah. And I, I, I just kind of, how lust and loss became an exchange and glances through a motel's cracked facade, how these roads kept on dressing down like lightning on a postcard running fingers in the hot mouth of experience is, is such a like, microphone drop like it's just it's a, oh, beautiful, God, yeah. it's a beautiful decline and then bam with that image at the end is, is yeah. i'm slapping the desk every time we <laughs> that's a desk slapper that's a desk slapper. and the the um the rhythms are so strong white paper coffee cups collect and drifts like the the ways in which all of the rhythms really punch the very, very stressed, stressed syllables and the really light unstressed syllables. Like there's over and over the poem, like the, the rhythm is so powerful. Um, it's, it's just anywhere you look, Amelia Earhart's flooded engines, like it both slows you down and kind of punches each of those stressed syllables. Do you guys ever just read down the um, right side, the last words of each line? and see how much it represents the poem itself. Like a reverse golden shovel? I guess. Like a what? A reverse reverse golden shovel. A golden shovel is when you take a line, it's a Terence Hayes invented form, and you take a line of poetry, and then you make, like, so you take like a, you take a line of poetry, and then each word becomes the last word of a line. (laughs) So that if you read the line, if you read the po- if you read the last word of every poem, it's almost, it's like an acrostic of the line that you started with. Awesome. I, I thought maybe it was like some tantric position. <laughs> <laughs> but I I love to do that and see if it echoes the poem itself, and I feel like it should. You know, like so if we go drifts, ghosts, window, four a.m. light, land, mountains, dumb, turbine, engines, floor, heights. Paving blown piston souvenirs, town stones, jagged story, glances, roads, postcard experience. Fuck yes. Right? It's yeah. all nouns. And you think that helps the specificity, right? The concrete yes. Well, and yeah. also that all of the line breaks are with the syntax, that you're kind of really hitting the noun before you move on to the next one. There's there's no break sort of in the middle of, of phrases and clauses. It's really kind of this like each line has a really powerful self-contained um, syntax that the, the it, when you look at that and you see that all of the line endings are a particular part of speech or something like that, um, you can see the way in which the line is being shaped to the phrase and the phrase is being shaped to the line. It's not just an arbitrary length where it's like, okay, we'll just cut it here and then we'll cut it here. It's 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 really shaped to, um, particularly with something like this where the where the rhythms and the length of the line are so regular. Yeah. Yeah, and there there's something about that rhythm too that's like I kept thinking like, is it is it windshield wipers, right? Like, is because the, there's such balanced cadence, right? White paper, coffee cups, collect and drifts by the freeway exit ramp the heart of ghosts, once held tight, 
then tossed out the window, right? And I, it's like somewhere between a heartbeat or pistons in an engine or windshield wipers, but it is a steady lub-dub through the whole poem. Like, a steady lub-dub? Yeah. Can that be the title of this episode? I think we've just came to the title. There it is. And I, I just said, said we've, came. we've just came to the title. We've just came to the title. <laughs> golden shovel. Golden steady shovel. Love of the steady lub-dub. Steady lub-dub. Then he left up with a golden shovel. Um, Yeah. Well, you know what I also love? I love uh, meeting with you guys and talking about poetry. And I feel like we could talk about this poem for another three days, maybe. Four days. And I I so wish we were outside on a patio somewhere with glasses of Prosecco in our hands, physically together. And maybe that'll happen someday soon. But that is a building. Okay, but the Prosecco. It can't be in the morning. Very <laughs> good. We have to wait. We have to pay the five o'clock roll at some point, or I'll never get through the summer. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, all right, you party pooper. <laughs> Unless, uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you if it's morning alcohol, it's okay. If it's a Bloody Mary. Well, or, can we um, have, what if we splash the mimosa right, no, in that prosecco? Then, call it a mimosa. Yeah, if it's a mimosa, then then we're fine. <laughs> like I, be able to, I can't apply the five o'clock rule to a mimosa because that's morning alcohol. Excellent, absolutely, absolutely. So that really was, you know, a build up to ask you if we, maybe we are ready to vote and move on to another one. Um, I I think we are, but I I would advocate we read this a second time and then vote. Right, okay. um, we have the poem in the room again. Okay. And can I nominate you? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. <sighs> San Gorgonio. White paper coffee cups collect in drifts by the freeway exit ramp. The hearts of ghosts, once held tight, then tossed out the window of a car speeding across the desert at 4 a.m. Trying to stay awake to see when the light came back what the battered face of the land could tell us about ourselves, how the mountains were stark and risen, how we were sunk dumb in between, a scathing plain of wind turbines resonating unearthly as Amelia Earhart's flooded engines chugging their final gasp on the ocean floor, how the sea was here once and swallowed heights long since yawned and pulled away paving this desert with a tired yellow dirt now blown through our teeth through our beating pistons and a few black rounded stones as souvenirs from lost time how thistle studded towns were hardly refuge how the many stones we had gathered were bright and jagged too young by design to tell any real story how lust and lost became an exchange in glances through a motel's cracked facade. How these roads kept on dressing down like lightning on a postcard, running fingers in the hot mouth of experience. Slap the table. So bad. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, I had this conversation with a lot of poets that, um, and I think a lot of people don't believe poets or believe the particular poets that say this but the first time through a poem I really hear sounds um, oh, yeah. oh yeah 
and and I'm not that you know it, it's just the first time through like like it's not that it's not that it doesn't make sense it's just that I'm so sort of like floating on this wave that it takes me a number of times through to kind of like get down to the meaning or to kind of see it all working at the same time it's like it's like seeing like a really you know huge painting or something you know like yes you take it in all at once but you have to keep looking at it because mm -hmm. that's how you're going to kind of understand the full experience. Let's vote, let's vote, let's vote. Okay, vote, 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 thumbs. Okay, one, two, three, vote. Woo, it's unanimous. Woo, unanimous. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. That, that, that was a jump scare. That's, <laughs> I'm I'm terrified. I I like one of those cats that sees a cucumber. <laughs> Slushies, remember that you can go to pbqmag.org and take a look at them. Yes. Um. So, because I'm sure you're going to want to spend three days with it on the prosecco. Um. And now we're moving on to another poem, self-portrait with elegy. I'm I'm, I'm kind of feeling Jason, but I'm always feeling Jason. All right. You know, Jason. I am, I am honored. I am honored to be voluntold <laughs> to read Self-Portrait with Elegy. Self-Portrait with Elegy. Just like we were on the Great Plains in 1949, my father and I would gather summer nights with neighbors lining our country road to watch constellations disbanding. Whether tragedy or a tragic lack of imagination, it's hard to say. He and I simply could not see any threads or their severing. Then, as now, telephone wires also lined the road, linking the night one lighted island at a time, though the wires are now dead gestures, props to a faded empire of distant voices made close but never close enough to turn that light into warmth. What's left, sinking into my own humidity, my own expanse of darkness, and he to his own. As you read this, it is surely a summer night someplace. The land extends forever until it gives up where the visible begins to visibly waver, either from the heat or from the failure of the possibilities of sight. Snaps, snaps, claps. Beautiful reading, beautiful reading. You know, I can't wait to talk about this with you guys because I love that essay by Yola Bliss. Yep. And just the, that the way that he, dead smack in the center, discusses the telephone wires somehow enriched that experience for me you know what I mean and I'm wondering if you don't know that essay if if it's as rich um so anyway what do you guys think self-portrait with elegy I, I was gonna say that um about that that image of the wires um where it says but never close enough to turn that light into warmth um because I never I never ever thought you know like I mean there are street lamps they're not you know it's like when you go to a restaurant and they have the heater outside, but by using that image, um, the coldness of them becomes so palpable and visible and in sort of invoking the warmth that isn't there that they can't provide. I had a completely different experience of them, 
but I just thought it was so gorgeous. Like it, like by kind of saying what they aren't, and even though I've, I've, I never expected a street lab to warm me, um, right. and yet in that, in that moment, like it becomes so frigid. There's something so icy and sort of terrifying about the cold light. Yeah, um, Dark, a starkness to the light. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, I'm rethinking. Yeah, I, I and also like, and because, and that's what we were, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, do we use nature to kind of resonate against the human? Um, and in this poem, we're doing it with technology, right? It's the technology that resonates mm -hmm. against the people. That the street lamps and the electricity can't connect, right? I mean, this is literally a connection, right? And then we're yeah. talking about the the father with whom right. he can't connect. And so the street lamps that are sort of carrying the electricity along these wires and kind of providing all these things. And yet um, that's resonating against the sort of, like it's not that they're not connected. I mean, they aren't talking, they're doing things together. Right. And yet like that image of um, it not being enough, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that it, it, it provides something, but it's not enough. Right. It's not the thing you need or want. Uh -huh. I, I was right and it all stems from the line of neighbors right also a line of neighbors gathering to watch constellations disband that's that's the catalyst for the for the right for the rest of it whether tragedy or tragic lack of imagination it's hard to say he and i simply could not see any threads or their sound yeah ah so Kathy and, and Jason, like the, you referenced the Eulabis essay, right? Um, I think it's time and distance overcome, right? And it's this gorgeous essay about telephone poles and telephone wires, but she also spins it to be an essay about racism and racial injustice and violence to black bodies, like in, in her essay. This doesn't go in that direction. It sort of points back into the sort of father-son equation right using that the history of technology to do it and and for me like it's it's there's a there's a what i think what i thought on first reading was a soft spot in the poem is actually i think the key right so see the first couple of words just like mm -hmm. right at first i was like cut that cut that shit you don't need that like just start with my father and i would gather summer nights with neighbors right but when you look at that the just like is actually the sort of grammatical, syntactical, rhetorical structure of the whole thing, right? We gather summer nights, right? Um, whether tragedy or tragic lack of imagination, right? Then as now, right? There's this like, just there's a, there's a kind of principle of comparison that's threaded through the whole thing. So this is that, this is that, this is like that, this is like that. And you can see it in what almost feels like this, like, chiastic stuff right but it's not quite right it, he just it's just like to the left of a chiasmus right yeah. but it's it is this principle of comparison the just likeness so the very thing i would have gotten in there with the red pen on is actually i think the like the rhetorical heart of the poem interesting i, I was just teaching a, a workshop on metaphor and simile and madonna um <laughs> and <laughs> The, the thing about similes is that they call attention to the comparison in a way that is constantly calling attention to what something's not, right? Whereas, whereas a, a metaphor kind of pulls you in and keeps kind of saying like, it, there, there's a way in which a metaphor is persuasive and sort of 
erotic in a way that a simile is actually kind of keeping you out of the thing by insisting on the comparison. Like, like the thing that the simile does is it keeps saying, this is like something, this is like something. And so it, it, it creates a really different, I had, I had been, I'd actually been a little bit down on simile until I, until I sort of spent some time with like a prayer um, and like a virgin and, um, and sort of became really fascinated with why those similes were um, similes. But um, in this, I think that that just like we were on the Great Plains in 1949, it's, it's a little bit odd because it's like, oh, it, so this is not happening in 1949? Like, I don't know what happens in the Great Plains in 1949. And so there's this kind of like really interesting distancing move that opens the poem where there's this frame of reference that we're kind of assumed to have that I don't. Um, and yet that, that framing feels really important, um, even though it does kind of like push back a little bit on, you know, the notion that I have this transparent understanding of exactly what we're talking about. And so like with, with the father-son relationship, like I feel that really keenly, but I'm also, there's something like that entry into the poem that kind of just reminds me that there's there's a little piece I'm missing. That this is like something that I, I can be, you know, I know what 1949 is. I know what the Great Plains are. Um, and yeah. yeah. Am I reading in too much if I say maybe that's part of the intent as well, just like the speaker and the father can't see the constellations? you know, that there's always going to be something you're missing. There's something just out of reach, something hinted at. Well, and I also had this problem. I mean, you know, like as a young person, um, the only constellation that looks like it's, I mean, the Big Dipper looks like a dipper. Yeah. Everything else, you're like, that's not a bear. Right. You have to connect the dotted lines <laughs> like, in a certain way. I mean, and I guess Orion's like, oh. belt looks like a belt. It, that's a line. Right. Like, I don't know if you have like the worst connect the dots book in the back of the car as a kid. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. Oh, um, I interpret. Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I interpreted constellations expanding as fireworks. Oh, just because uh -huh. like they go out and then, or well, depending. There's a lot of different fireworks, but I, I saw this as kind of like this this American frontier poem in a way, like the constellations as like kind of you know diff different ethnic groups and different ideas of, of America and how uh, I keep looking back to that title, that idea of self-portrait with elegy and like the self-portrait of like a person who's like this American boy or this American man. And, you know, we have all these stories um, and like him and his father uh, both kind of grappling with uh, like how they are threaded or connected to that story and also how they're somehow like severed from it. And I feel like this poem works for me, like in a lot of these epic kind of impressions that I have, like Great Plains and, and 1949. And, and I think the word empire comes in later, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and even summer night, right? And so for me, almost like each of these, a lot of these lines are like launch pads for me to this like other kind of constellations of stories. Mm -hmm. And there's also this weird, elegy or the sadness within that too because I don't know how I'm connected to that but I'm also somehow don't know how I am severed from that um right. I think this this is a it's a really fun poem and and I, I don't know I think it's you Kathy always talks about like wanting to sh show someone a poem and this is definitely like a poem I would like to show people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
That's wonderful. Thank you, Sam. And on the whole, again, you know, that's when I started when the discussion on this poem, the telephone wires are definitely a thing for me. Like it's a thing I think about. Um, and I know that there's been, I literally have phone wires hanging off my house that no utility company will remove because nobody, they're all dead. And all of these telephone poles and telephone wires are going to be left up. Like I, I read about this, that it's too expensive to remove them, even though we're not using them any longer. But the squirrels are using them. They're like a squirrel transportation. <laughs> right. A squirrel mode of transportation. Absolutely. But I loved that description, specific though the wires are now dead gestures, props to a faded empire of distant voices made close, but never close enough. <sighs> so good, right? So good. And it, all of this reminds me of... Um, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Josh Lauer, who I knew in another lifetime. He's a, a media historian and cultural critic, and he's currently working on a book about the cultural history of the telephone, right? And so in the last 15 minutes, I, I keep writing these notes. I'm like, share this episode with Josh. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, needs to, he needs to see this poem, right? And because in so many ways, like poet, poets and essayists um, outside of academia, right, are doing this sort of like, registering technology in the in the in the in the weave of experience right that the wires are there and emblematic of something that we, they were meant to connect us right into this point of severing right they're meant to connect us but are also now dead gestures right like that we're again right connected and yet unable to see the connections right whether that's because of heat in the distance or the failure of, of sight you know and I'm, I'm just pointing to the end of the poem, that beautiful wow. again, elegiac ending, right? It's just like, there's failure here. And, and, and now it's the poet, the speaker naming the ways, right? In which to describe that, that failure of vision. You know, people did used to write about the telephone booth and romanticize the telephone, the payphone, right? And, and now we also don't use the um, telephone pole. And I, I just, I just love that place in this. And I don't know, Alex. I don't. I really do think it's a constellations disbanding. I think it's about shooting stars. You know, there are certain nights in the summer that you're supposed to be able to see different, you know, different um, events occur. And sometimes I know I've been in exactly this position of like being all excited, looking up at the sky, and then I can't see whatever it is that's supposed to be happening you know yeah like yeah. a meteor shower yeah right 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 totally. yeah because with the meteor shower you're it's always like by the time you've seen it you've missed it <laughs> like, yeah. right, right. Um, but i i wanted to add my one my one um my favorite and i think this is really weirdly i i can never figure out why this matters so much but in edward hopper paintings yes. there are always telephone poles and never telephone wires oh interesting interesting that's like a Zen koan. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the the poles are a really important part of the landscape, but somehow the wires, if they if those were represented, they would they would somehow not like they would somehow destroy the picture or something. Because it's a good decision. Like once you see it, yeah. you're like, oh, that was a mm -hmm. really good call. Yeah. But you think of him as being such a such a um, realistic painter, like such a figurative painter, and then to sort of realize there's this you know this incredible omission. 
that's like totally on purpose. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that if, if you, it, that makes a lot more sense if it's, it's that the threads were kind of like shooting stars or like meteor showers that, you know, everyone else is like, ooh, and they're like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Jason, from the second you finished reading this, I couldn't wait for you to read it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been like waiting to hear it again because it's, it's just so gorgeous and your reading was so wonderful. Rocco Capaferi's words are so wonderful. Um, I'm wondering, again, I'm always the, uh, the one who makes us come back to reality. Should we vote? Let us, let yeah. us, let us. Let's go for it. Okay, so wait, are we gonna read it again first? Totally, Jason. Yeah. Okay, all right, I'm jumping in. Yeah, okay. again. I only have to be volunteered once or twice or possibly four times. Um, Self-portrait with elegy. Just like we were on the Great Plains in 1949, my father and I would gather summer nights with neighbors lining our country road to watch constellations disbanding. Whether tragedy or tragic lack of imagination, it's hard to say. He and I simply could not see any threats or their suffering. Then, as now, telephone wires also lined the road, linking the night one lighted island at a time. Though the wires are now dead gestures, props to a faded empire of distant voices made close, but never close enough to turn that light into warmth. What's left sinking into my own humidity, my own expanse of darkness, and he to his own. As you read this, it is surely a summer night someplace. The land extends forever until it gives up where the visible begins to visibly waver, either from the heat or from the failure of the possibilities of sight. I, and I, you know, and it's funny because I, I, I heard, you know, what, I mean, one of the things that, that I often say to students is like one of the great things what makes something art is that it keeps yielding that when you keep going back to it you keep getting something else um and this time instead of kind of having the emphasis on the light from the telephone poles that are also doubling as street lamps it was all about the voices that were trying to be brought along it and so the, the heat um was the connective voices for me this time um as opposed to it, it just came out, out in a different resonance that i thought was also really beautiful and that's how I don't know I'm like certainly in teacher mode right now that's um, great. it's great and that's how ambiguity works because people think that ambiguity means it can be anything anyone wants no 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 ambiguity is when there are a discrete number of options and they will not resolve yes both the um light from the street lamps and the voices on the telephone wires and both of those things work that's that's an ambiguity there you go Thank you for that. Um, shall we? Shall we throw thumbs? We shall. Yes. Shall we? Yes. Two. Three. And it's unanimous. Woo! Woo! And some off-screen dancing. Woo! <laughs> oh, I'm not on mute. <laughs> <laughs> 
was watching some like gladiator thing and you know at the end like where the where the emperor gives like the thumbs up or the thumbs down and i had never connected like our thumbs to like <laughs> gladiator emperor thumbs and i was like oh, oh wow like oh wow oh, like that's a resonance you know i'm gonna i'm never gonna unsee now well, you know what though? I'm glad I'm glad you did that because that is actually the heart of this podcast, right? Like pulling back the veil, like editors are are little emperors. We are little emperors. We get to decide what's in, what's out. Like that is that is a powerful flipping of the thumbs, right? So right, right. And which to say, I just want to finish that thought. That's the logic of this show is to show you what the conversation looks like and to demystify that a little bit because you know, slushies, you you give your work over to uh, a literary magazine and then it's a bunch of silence right so we want to make sure that you see and hear what the conversations can be like right all I was going to add is that I've always been so grateful from literally the first day walking into Lou Camp's living room yeah. and being handed a glass of wine that everybody's vote is equal I've always yeah. been so grateful that we're co-emperors Co-emperors. Right. I don't want to have the response. I would never want to be with a magazine where someone was at the helm where the whole team said yes. And then the emperor was able to say no. Or the yeah. emperor was it, you know, yeah. I would never want to be part of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. KVM, I totally hear you on that too, right? And in another another timeline of our lives, we should start another podcast called Luke Camp's Living Room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I think Jason's point though is about like the gladiators, right? So like that asymmetry between the emperor and the gladiators is really the thing we're trying to expose in a way, right? It's like we, yeah. we treat this work with, I'm sorry, we just treat the work with such seriousness when it comes to us and that's invisible to the gladiators, yeah. right? We're not, we're not, you know, total. Yeah. We, we also don't make the poems choose a set of weapons and then fight each other. To the death. Like we also just don't do that. I think we're trying to be far more humane than the emperor yeah, and the right? And, and this is how a metaphor fails. Yeah. I think yeah. this, this this comparison only goes so far. Oh, but, it's, a, um, it's a simile or a metaphor? I don't know. It's a it's, metaphor. <laughs> there's my my, my big takeaway because I I couldn't you know I mean, we're still short of libraries. I still can't access. Like I I was trying to get to the I A Richards. 1927 essay where he lays out the tenor and, and vehicle and, and mm -hmm. I have a whole thing about how that's like you know it, it matches the Surian linguistics and it does all these things um but I couldn't get to it so I, I could only like kind of deal with what I actually have on hand and so the reading that I did in the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetics basically said look like no one agrees on what metaphors are some people think that all figurative language are metaphors. Some people talk about metaphors this way. Nietzsche says that there is no such thing as literal language until philosophy that Socrates invents literal language and everything's a metaphor before that. And so it's just like, you know what? Like anyone, anyone who wants to tell you that you're wrong about metaphors is wrong. <laughs> like I can give you structures and I can yeah. give you, you know, like, like ways to think about it. But anyone who's like, no, 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 it works this way. That, that person's not right. Clarity. Yeah, there you Clarity. go. <laughs> Clarity. <laughs> Um, okay, slushies, thank you so much for listening, but I think we should um, really give Marco Capaferi another one. Oh, Way to go, Marco. Yeah, thank you so much for allowing us to discuss these in this public way. And um, and uh, yeah, and now we're gonna publish them, which is so exciting. So pbmag.org if you, if you would like to read them uh, as well as now that you've heard them read. And um, please let us know how we're doing and um, keep reading.
Thank you.